This is the Rounds Table. Hello and welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Kieran, is that you? No, it's not. This is Fraser Pollard, and I'll be guest hosting this week as Kieran's away. Joining me is my wife and colleague, Ashley Manouf, who is a family doctor and hospitalist in Trenton, Ontario. I do the same. Thank you, Fraser. Today, we'll be talking about sore throats and sore legs. I'll be talking about the effect of dexamethasone in acute sore throat, and Fraser will be taking us through a study on the potential benefits of actively commuting to work. Thank you, Ashley. So let's get started. Ashley's article is looking at the effect of oral dexamethasone on acute sore throat in adults. It was published in JAMA in April 2017. What's the bottom line for this article, Ash? Well, in this randomized control trial of more than 500 adults with acute pharyngitis, those treated with a single dose of dexamethasone were no more likely to experience complete resolution of symptoms at 24 hours than those treated with placebo. However, they were significantly more likely to have complete resolution of symptoms by 48 hours. This was true whether or not patients were offered a prescription for delayed antibiotics. Okay, so why did you choose this? Well, as you know, sore throat is a very common presenting complaint in family practice, and many of our patients will come in expecting a prescription that will offer some kind of relief. And in their perception, often this means a prescription for antibiotics, which is a problem for us because we know that the vast majority of adult pharyngitis is viral. Most of these patients have already tried the usual over-the-counter analgesics, and they are just looking for something to relieve their pain and autonophagia. Uh, it would be nice to be able to offer an evidence-based alternative, such as oral steroids, that would offer effective pain relief and would likely improve patient satisfaction, especially in the face of being denied antibiotics. So you're looking at providing something beyond what they can get at the drugstore to make their life a little bit better when they're getting that common sore throat. Exactly. So how do they design the study? So this was a double-blind, placebo-controlled randomized trial conducted in 42 family practices in England from April 2013 to February 2015. Participants were 565 adults recruited on the day they presented to a family care practitioner with acute sore throat. That is less than one week. And judged to be caused by an infection, but not requiring immediate antibiotic therapy. Exclusion criteria included recent use of inhaled or oral corticosteroids, recent use of antibiotics, uh, adenotonsillectomy, or a clear alternative diagnosis, for example, pneumonia. On presentation, a baseline clinical workup was done, including a throat swab, but no rapid strep test. And the clinician was free to decide whether to offer no antibiotics or delayed antibiotics with instructions for patient to fill the prescription if their symptoms did not improve in 48 hours. Okay, so the intervention then is giving the dexamethasone or not getting the dexamethasone? Right, so the intervention was either a single dose of dexamethasone 10 milligrams versus an identical placebo that was taken right there in the office. In front of the, in front of the doctor? Yes. Okay. And primary outcome data were collected in a few ways. One was via phone or text message at 24 and 48 hours. There was also a seven-day patient symptom diary. 
and also there was a review of the patient's electronic medical record at one month. Okay, so what were the primary outcomes they were looking at? The primary outcome in this study was the proportion of participants with complete resolution of symptoms at 24 hours as they reported by either phone contact or text message. Great, so they're just looking to see if the symptoms are completely gone or if they're still there at all. Was there any other outcomes they were looking at? Yes, there were a number of secondary outcomes. These included the proportion of patients with complete resolution at 48 hours, patient reported time to the onset of pain relief and complete resolution, use of delayed antibiotics or other medications, healthcare usage, and some other symptoms scales. What were the main findings of the study? A single dose of dexamethasone did not significantly increase the proportion of patients reporting complete resolution at 24 hours, which was the primary outcome measure. In the dexamethasone group, 23% reported complete resolution at 24 hours compared to 18% in the placebo group, which is not significantly different. The outcomes did not differ between those who were offered no antibiotics and those who were offered delayed antibiotics. At 48 hours, there was a significant difference between groups, with 35% of patients in the DEX group reporting complete resolution compared to 27% in the placebo group. This corresponds to a number needed to treat of about 12. The benefit of dexamethasone was driven by the no antibiotic subgroup, as there was no significant difference among those who were offered antibiotics. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, note that the, the presence of streptococcus on the throat swab did not affect the group differences, although that uh, the number of positive strep tests was fairly low. And with the secondary outcomes they were looking at, was there anything significant or of value in there? Uh, well, the, interestingly, the reported use of over-the-counter analgesics in the first 48 hours was similar between groups, approaching 80% for both the intervention and the placebo group. Oh, that's quite a bit. Right. That's a, a pretty high rate of uh, analgesic use. As you can imagine, many people are still probably using their ibuprofen and acetaminophen as they normally would. Now, the number of days of moderately bad symptoms did not differ significantly between groups. Symptom scores did not differ. The time to onset of pain relief or to complete resolution did not differ between groups. And the, medium, the median time to complete symptom resolution was about 60 to 65 hours for both groups. Okay. Is there any uh, interesting points or observations about the, the methodology of this study that caught your eye? Uh, well, interestingly, this is actually the first trial to evaluate the benefits of oral corticosteroids for acute sore throat in a primary care setting, as opposed to an emergency department setting. Um, and this was the first study to evaluate the benefits of steroids in the absence of antibiotics, as previous studies often included an immediate prescription for antibiotics, as well as the dexamethasone. Okay, so they're breaking new ground a little bit here. Yeah. Um, and one thing that we talked about a little bit before was that adherence to the treatment in this study was 100%, as the patients were actually observed taking the dose. Yeah, so I mean, we're not going to see that in our practice. So are you wondering that maybe the, the external validity is down a little bit because of that, or just the overall strength of the study is good? Yeah, I, I meant it more as the, the strength being good. I think normally patients who are suffering are more inclined to actually take their dose of medication. Um, 
Now, interestingly, we said this, this study is a little bit different than previous studies. Um, and it also showed a lower effect size uh, for the use of steroids than previous studies have. Now, this suggests a, a few possibilities. So there's possibly a synergistic effect between antibiotics or corticosteroids, or it might also be that steroids are beneficial mostly for those with severe sore throats. And in this study, those with the most severe illness were more likely to be excluded as they were uh, more likely to have been given immediate antibiotics and therefore not been part of the study. Okay. Beyond that, is there any big limitations to this study? Um, th there weren't major limitations of the study. Um, now, and not surprisingly, the symptom diaries that the patients were supposed to fill out were only completed by about 75% of patients, although this is similar to other trials. Um, and the study was somewhat uh, underpowered to detect modest effects on primary outcome or to detect differences in adverse events, which was the, the rate of adverse events in the study was extremely low. Okay. So overall, do you think this was a good article? Overall, I think this was a well-conducted trial, including a very commonly seen population and very common presentation to primary care. So quite relevant. Okay. And in your practice, does this apply to somebody specifically? Uh, well, in this study, the average person was a non-smoking female in her 30s, presenting with three to four days of sore throat and painful swallowing, afebrile, has some pharyngeal inflammation, but no exudates. So... You know, this is pretty well your standard presenter with sore throat. Okay. Um, and based on this article, is it going to change what you do in practice at all? I think that's tough to say. Um, I do like to at least have the option of a, a prescription that might be beneficial for someone. Now, the results weren't as impressive as I would have liked to see. Um, but... You know, the main takeaway point that I'm seeing is that dexamethasone may increase the likelihood of complete resolution at 48 hours with a number needed to treat of about 12. Uh, so I may be offering this prescription, but keeping in mind that the majority of outcomes of interest were really not impacted by the use of steroids. Yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, you could sort of take the approach. I've got something here that can help out your symptoms, or you could say, listen, you've got a typical sore throat, tough yeah. it out for a few days. You don't need yeah. a, a medication for it. And for that patient who is really pushing for a prescription, they really want the antibiotics. Uh, if you're the kind of person who has a lot of difficulty with those types of patients, then at least being able to offer a prescription saying this might help with symptom relief, at least it's something. Okay, fair enough. Thanks, Ash. So we'll move on to my article. So my article was published in BMJ in March 2017, and it was looking at an association between active commuting by cycling or walking and the incident of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and uh, mortality. Fraser, why did you choose this study? Well, for me, exercise is a standard recommendation for all my patients. I tend to cite the cardiovascular benefits mostly, but also as someone ages, I'll talk to talk about the retained physical function, or if I have a diabetic, I'll focus on, on exercise as well. And I normally just recommend 30 minutes, five times per week of something active. This article seemed to give me some insight into how those 30 minutes could be achieved, whether it's something you have to go home or to the gym and focus on, or you can just work it into your, your, your daily routine, and specifically in this case, commuting. So what was the main message for this article? 
Well, what they did was a prospective popula population-based study of about 260,000 participants. And what they found is cycle commuting was associate, associated with a statistically lower risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and all-cause mortality. And commuting by walking was associated with a significantly lower risk of cardiovascular disease incidence and mortality. Well, that sounds quite promising. Take me through the design of this study. So this was a prospective population-based study. It took place in England, Wales, and Scotland. And the participants were from the UK Biobank. So for anybody that doesn't know, the UK uh, Biobank, it's an initiative. Um, and what they basically do is follow the health of over 500,000 individuals. And these people were, were enrolled between 2007 and 2010. Uh, they're 40 to 69 years old. Um, and the data right now, or at least in this article, was available up to about 2011 to 2014, depending on the country and the, and the variable uh, they were looking at. So what they did is they picked out how the person was commuting to work and then looked through various sources of data to find out whether there was uh, mortality, whether there was cardiovascular disease, whether it was there was cancer, and then they did a statistical analysis to see if there was a relationship. So was there any specific intervention in the study? No, there wasn't a specific intervention. Uh, people weren't asked to change their, their normal daily activities. And who were the patients in this study? So there was 265,000 people taken from the 500,000 people in the UK biobank. Um, these people needed to be in paid employment or self-employed, but did not always work from home. And they had to be between 40 to 69 years old from the general public. So 93% of these people were white. They were half male and female. 90% were non-smokers. 75% had a BMI between 18 and 30. And 65% had a sedentary job. There were some people excluded from this as well, um, but not from the whole study. So when they did specific statistical analysis, they excluded certain people. So for example, um, they excluded participants with prevalent cardiovascular disease and cancer at baseline from the cardiovascular disease and cancer models, respectively. And they also um, took patients with a history of cardiovascular disease disease and cancer out of their models for all-cause mortality. Okay, so there was no overarching exclusion criteria. Here. No, but there was things they'd pick and choose as they went through and did their different models. Okay. What were the primary outcomes here? So the primary outcome they were looking at was all-cause mortality, um, but they also were looking at cardiovascular disease and cancer incidence and the deaths from cardiovascular disease and cancer. Now, although we said there wasn't a specific intervention, they were analyzing people within certain groups. So the commuting groups were broken into five different things. One was non-active, so they're sitting on a bus driving their car. Then we're looking at people that cycle all the way to work and back, or people that cycle part of the way and get on the bus part of the way, and then we're looking at people that walk all the way to work and back, and then people that walk part of the way and get on the bus part of the way. So it's five different groups. Okay, so it sounds like this was broken down in a fairly systematic way. Take me through the main findings of the study. 
The association between active commuting and health outcomes was done using Cox proportional hazard models. For all-cause mortality, cycle commuting was statistically significant compared to the non-active reference group, and the hazard ratio was 0.59. So mixed cycling, so that's cycling and maybe riding the bus as well, was also statistically significant for all-cause mortality with a hazard ratio of 0.76. For cardiovascular disease mortality, walking and cycling were both statistically significant in reducing that risk. And then if you look at cardiovascular disease incidents, cycling and walking, once again, are statistically significant. And then when you look at cancer incidents and cancer mortality, it's only cycling and mixed commuting with cycling that uh, are statistically significant. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things going on here, and they're looking at a bunch of different variables. But basically, the, the big finding is if you are biking or walking to work, you can reduce your cardiovascular disease mortality, and um, you can reduce your, reduce your cardiovascular disease incidence. Now, if you're biking to work, you can also reduce your all-cause mortality and your incidence and, all, and mortality from cancer. Now, my question would be, uh, were other aspects of these people's lives controlled for in any way? So, yes, there's a lot of data collected on these people. Um, when you look at how much exercise they're out of doing outside of work otherwise, whether it's vigorous exercise outside of work, what their BMI is, what their diet's like, um, whether they smoke. So there's a lot of factors that go into this. Okay. Um, any particularly interesting points or observations that caught your eye in this article? Well, first of all, the size of it. Um, there is a ton of data here with 265,000 people. So they were really able to break it down into a lot of different categories. Um, and we're not going to dig into all of it here, but if somebody picks up this article themselves, there's a lot of interesting sub-analysis that can be looked at as well. And would you say there's any important limitations of the study to bring up? Well, one limitation is that they only asked about the mode of transportation at baseline. So it's not like somebody was checking in every month to say, I'm still cycling to work, I'm still walking to work. Now, 20% of the participants did wear an accelerometer um, to measure their physical activity, but these weren't things that they monitored over time or trended over time. They tended to be one-time one recordings. Um, so, you know, if, if, how often do you hear somebody say, okay, I'm going to get fit this summer, I'm going to get in shape and do this. So I don't really know if this is how, whether people are actually staying in the group they originally say they're in, being a, somebody who cycles to work every day or not. Right. So essentially, you're saying there was no way to know whether a person was adherent to their own reported mode of transportation. Yeah, not as far as I can see in this article, no. And did they, did they take, just out of curiosity, did they take into account the uh, length, like the distance to work? They did. And what they found is the further you traveled, uh, the better your benefit. Not being that if you travel one kilometer is better than two kilometers, better than three. But if you travel a short distance, it's not as good as traveling a long distance, cycling, walking, or doing any of the mixed forms of tra traveling. All in all, do you think this study is believable? I think overall it's a well-designed study um, and it really supports the basic idea that active commuting as part of your total daily exercise contributes to overall health benefits. And in this case, that includes your reducing your risk of all-cause mortality. Who does this study apply to? 
So just going based on the numbers in their, their table one, this is your middle age, so 40 to 69 year old, white, male or female with a sedentary job. Interestingly though, when they're looking at all-cause mortality um, and doing their analysis of, of the statistics there, they're actually excluding people who have a baseline um, cardiovascular disease or cancer. So, you know, a lot of people you're recommending this to, exercise to, have cardiovascular disease. It's, I'm not often telling people with cancer to start exercising more, um, but, you know, there's, there's these important people that are not in that analysis um, that may affect it. So I think you can still uh, include most people in this just based on the size of the, the size of the study that was done, but that there's a little limitation there. So Fraser, will this uh, change the way you practice at all? Or more importantly, are we going to start riding our bikes to work? Ah, I don't know. I mean, the road's pretty narrow here. There's not a paved shoulder. Uh, and you definitely can't walk it. That's too far. And, you know, this study was done in the UK. Uh, so a lot of cities and the way that that uh, those towns built up was before a car. So the areas where we're living in the GTA, out here in Trenton, or if you're even in an area like Whitby, those areas have very spread out centers. And it's not that easy to just get on your bike and ride 15 kilometers. Um, so... Yeah, I think if you're in the right setting, if people have access to a safe road to bike on, then I'd recommend it. But uh, for a lot of my patients out here in Trenton, I don't think that it's as practical. Just full of excuses. I guess so, yeah. yeah. Well, folks, now it's time for Fraser's least favorite part of the show, the good stuff segment. Well, it's only my least favorite part of the show because it's Kieran's favorite part of the show. So, the thing I found this week uh, is an article that was published in Cell, just in uh, May 2017, this month, um, and they were looking at enterococci and really looking at their evolution and where they came from. Uh, and uh, specifically, they were looking at them because we know enterococci to be in that group of superbugs that we're seeing in the hospitals throughout Canada, North America, and the world. And interestingly, what they found is a lot of the genes they express for uh, antibiotic resistance have actually been present for hundreds of millions of years. Um, so as humans, we like to take credit for a lot of stuff. Uh, but in fact, you know, a lot of this antibiotic resistance uh, was developed long before we were here. And it's a little bit humbling to see that all these bacteria that are causing such a, a hit to our healthcare system at this time have a bit of a leg up on us. They've been doing this for hundreds of millions of years. Ash, what's yours? This week, I came across a popular news article that should be good news for those of us who love our cheese and full-fat dairy products. A very recently published meta-analysis in the European Journal of Epidemiology uh, was looking at milk and dairy consumption of the risk of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. And the good news is that eating cheese and dairy, whether it be full fat or not, uh, had no association with cardiovascular disease, coronary heart disease, or all-cause mortality. 
Now, this was a meta-analysis looking at only prospective cohort studies involving almost a million patients, um, looking at consumption of milk, yogurt, fermented dairy products, cheese, uh, and total dairy, and its association with the all-cause mortality and heart disease. Um, and, and the researchers did adjust for confounding variables like age, sex, smoking, alcohol intake, BMIs, physical activity. Um, and the conclusion was that total dairy intake, either high or low fat, uh, and milk intake, yogurt intake, uh, was not associated with a risk of all-cause death, coronary heart disease, or cardiovascular disease. In fact, uh, the intake of fermented dairy was actually associated with a very slightly decreased risk of both death and uh, cardiovascular risk, although this just barely reached statistical significance, so I'm not sure we can take much away from that. But the moral of this story was that, uh, you know, eat your cheese and you don't have to rush for the skin milk. Hmm, pizza this weekend then, eh? Yeah, probably uh, the cheese is probably the least unhealthy part of the pizza. Okay, well that's it for us. Thanks Ash for hosting with me. Kieran, thanks for letting us do it. He'll be back next week. Ciao. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds table podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.